So this morning we are in Psalm 9. Psalm 9 is one of many psalms that have a superscription or a, a subtitle underneath uh, the number of the psalm. Uh, I believe that those superscriptions are part of the inspired word. They're in the original manuscripts. And so uh, typically when we read the psalms, I read those, uh, those superscriptions. This one says, To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. So the phrase to the choir master reminds us what this is, that this is a song that was intended to be sung by the corporate um, gathering of the Israelites. When they would gather, they sang this in their corporate worship. It says, according to Muth Laban, nobody really knows what that means. Uh, your ESV note is, uh, study note is probably going to say something like it's a some sort of uh, musical notation or something used in, in liturgy, which also tells us that this was sung in corporate worship. Uh, the phrase itself literally translates as the death of the sun, was what that means, um, which it could mean that this, the occasion for the writing of Psalm 9 was the death of Absalom, who was the son of King David who wrote this psalm. Um, and Absalom turned out to be quite a handful, right? He, he, he was a traitor against his own father and, and was jealous of his power and authority as, and, as king and tried to usurp him. And so he was an enemy of King David. And that would seem to fit the content of this psalm, as, we're, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, but we don't know for sure if that's actually the case or not. Uh, the phrase, a psalm of David, that word psalm there is the Hebrew, Hebrew word mizmor, which just basically means song. In fact, uh, twice in uh, Psalm 9, we'll find the verb form of that word, and it's translated both times as the word sing, sing praises to the Lord. And so this is a song of David. So what is David singing about in this psalm? What's well, a psalm of praise? We've looked at a number of different kinds of psalms this summer. We've looked at some psalms of lament, a royal psalm, a, psalm, a messianic psalm. And this morning, we're going to look at a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving. God is praising, or David is praising God for delivering his people from their enemies, now, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are very closely linked together, uh, so closely that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually includes what we know to be a Psalm 9 and 10 as one psalm. And so that's why if you look at the Septuagint, their numbering of the psalms is going to be different beginning at Psalm 9. And then they both have uh, 150, so later on it, it does the opposite, and it works itself out. But that's why there's a difference in the numbering, because they believe that this was intended to be one psalm. The Hebrew translation, which is what the Old Testament was written in, includes it as two distinct psalms. And I, I believe it is two distinct psalms uh, for the same reasons that I explained a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 10. But they're complementary. And they're complementary, again, because of their differences. Psalm 10, if you recall a couple of weeks ago, is a psalm of lament, lamenting that God had not given them victory over their enemies. 
King David was lamenting the fact that, that evil was winning and wickedness was winning. And so that was a psalm of lament about that. Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise, praising God for when he does give victory over one's enemies. And I'm grateful for both of those. I'm grateful for both the psalm of lament for when God does not, and I'm grateful for the psalm of praise for when he does. Because sometimes life for us is is like that of Psalm 10, where it seems like wickedness is winning, when it seems like evil in the world is winning, and sometimes life is more like what we find here in Psalm 9, where God has been kind and gracious to provide victory over our enemies. And for both situations, the Psalms give voice to the cry of our heart. When it seems like wickedness and evil are winning, we cry out along with David in Psalm 10, why, O Lord, does it seem like you're far away? Why, O Lord, does it seem like you're absent? Why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper? And then when the Lord graciously provides us victory over our enemies, we cry out with David in Psalm 9 with shouts of praise and thanksgiving for him coming through for us and fighting our battles for us and giving us victory over our enemies. No matter what our experience is in life, no matter what we're going through in certain stages and seasons of our life, we can find a psalm that gives voice to the cry of our heart. And that's one of the reasons why I love the book of Psalms. And so this morning we're going to read Psalm 9. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read God's word. Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. That I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegion Salah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, 
all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the privilege uh, that it's been this morning already to gather with God's people and worship you. Uh, We thank you for the time of being able to do that in song. We thank you for the opportunity to do that through the observance of the Lord's Supper. And now, Father, we do that as we continue our worship, as we look to your word. We thank you for this book. We thank you for uh, just sovereignly watching over it throughout the ages such that we can know that what we hold in our hands is your very breath to us. And because it is, Lord, we, we believe that it is inspired by you and profitable for every good work. And so, Lord, we ask that you would use your word through the presence of your Holy Spirit to edify the church, to encourage the body of believers here, to bring the gospel to bear on all who are present. Father, we pray for spiritual fruit simply as a result of your word being driven deep into our soul. We thank you for it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I were to give you a simple outline of Psalm 9, it would be divided into two nearly equal halves. The first 12 verses is David praising God. That's what he's doing in those first, two, first 12 verses. David is praising God for specifically judging the wicked and for his just rule, his just rule over uh, the, the oppressed and his uh, rule in providing for those who are uh, who experience injustice at the hand of the wicked. So he's praising God in the first 12 verses. And then in verses 13 through 20, through the end of the chapter, uh, David is entreating God. He's coming before God, asking him to do something. And he's asking for God to continue to judge the, wec- the wicked. And he's asking for God to continue in his just rule. Now, before we dive into the weeds of this text, I want to offer one preliminary kind of overarching observation about this psalm, and that is the the general flow of this. I don't know if you picked up on it as we read and as we just went kind of a, a very simple outline to see how it flows, but the general flow of this psalm is God is praised and then God is entreated. David praises God for who he is and what he's done before he comes to God to ask him to do anything. And that's a pattern that we see often in Scripture. It's a pattern that we see particularly often in the Psalms. But why? Why is that? Now, I don't think that this is intended to be some kind of uh, formulaic requirement that we're supposed to Uh, praise God for something before we ask God for something. I don't think that's what is intended here. Instead, I think we should ask ourselves, why in this particular case does David do this? What might compel David to praise God for the very thing that he then asked God to continue to do? 
David here praises God for judging the wicked and for, for bringing justice to the oppressed because he's seen God do that. He's seen God do that in his past and in Israel's past. And he, and he praises God for that. He thanks God for this. And then in the second half of the psalm, he entreats God to do those very same things in the present. Why? Well, I don't think what David is doing here is trying to butter up God with compliments in order for God to do that which he's asking him to do. We can't manipulate God in that way. He's not trying to butter God up and then ask him for something. Sometimes that's what my wife Susan will do for me at, at home. She'll say something like, Ken, you, man, you, you grill the very best steaks. Like, they're just really, really good. Could you grill some steaks tonight? Or can you, man, you really give the very best back rubs. Could I have one of those tonight? Now, I'm, I'm not insinuating that Susan would try to manipulate me into grilling more steaks and giving more back rubs, but I wouldn't put it past her, right? <laughs> I don't think that's what's happening here, right? We, we, we can't manipulate God. We, can't, we can try to butter God up, but it's not going to work, right? We're not going to manipulate God just by recounting the ways that he has come through for us in the past. No, I think David's pattern here of praise God, then entreat God, tells us more about David than about God. I think the occasion for the writing of Psalm 9 was the attack of an enemy. I think an enemy was attacking, whether it was King Saul or his son Absalom or the Amalekites, which were the dreaded enemy of the Israelites during much of his reign, or any of the other surrounding nations. Whoever it was, I think the occasion for this psalm was that an enemy was threatening him and was threatening Israel. And David is recalling here that, man, God had come through for him time and time and time again in the past, both for him individually and for God's chosen people, Israel, corporately. And he's recalling this, and he's, he's reminded that his only source of hope when enemies attack is the Lord. That's his only real source of hope. And this leads him to praise God. And then and only then does he entreat God to, to act in his present circumstances, and he brings his present circumstances of another attack by another enemy to the Lord. So I take this to mean that, that it is his confidence, David's confidence in God's character demonstrated by God's past actions that then compels David to entreat God to come through for him in this present circumstance of battling against another enemy. And he needs to be reminded of how God has come through for him. And we do too. It's very easy for us to forget the ways in which God has come through for us in our own past. And I think there's maybe a part of us that, that either tends to forget or uh, perhaps we tend to convince ourselves over time that, that our victory over our enemy was really our own doing, that it was our wisdom, that it was our decision, that it was our strength, 
than our own hand that was operative in the victory over our enemies. I think we often tend to overinflate our own role in our victories and deflate the role of God in those victories. And I think parenthetically, we probably tend to do the opposite in our defeats, that we overinflate the role of other people in our defeats because, after all, then we don't have to take much of the blame if we've given it to someone else. But I think it's a natural tendency of sinful man to discount the sovereignty of God and overinflate our own role when we experience victory over enemies, when we experience those victories. And so we would do well here to take our cue from David's example and be quick to recognize that it is God and God alone who is to be praised and thanked for the victories that we've seen in our lives. So we have to intentionally seek to deflate our estimation of our own role in our victories and inflate our estimation of God's role in our victories because God is the one who is operative in any victory whatsoever that we experience over our enemies. David recognized this. He recognized that it was God who had won the victories over his enemy. And so David's hope in his present circumstances were on God alone. And upon recognition of this, that, that his only hope in his present circumstances, facing whatever enemy he's facing now, is in God alone. His recognition of that compels him then to bring these current circumstances before the Lord in prayer, to ask God to do what he's done in the past in his present circumstances with this new enemy. And so that's the general flow of this psalm that we see. That there's praise and then prayer. There's, there's praising God for who he is and what he's done. And then there's beseeching God and entreating God to continue to do that in his current circumstances. So what does he praise God for specifically? First of all, we see in verse 1, he praises God for what he has done in his past. It says in verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. But then secondly, he also praises God for who he is. Verse 2, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So see what he's doing here. David thanks God for what God has done for him, and he praises God for who he is. He thanks God for what he's done, and he praises God for who he is. The former is simply a recognition that God is the one who has acted. God is the one who is operative. Look at all the ways he has come through for us, all of his righteous deeds, while the latter is a recognition of God's character, God's nature, of simply him being God. And God deserves our thanks for all of his wondrous deeds. He deserves our, our praise for just being God. I will exult, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So God deserves both of those things, right? He deserves our praise for who he is, and he deserves our thanks for what he has done. So just think in your own walk with the Lord, in your own spiritual life. Do you give God both of those things? Which of those do you tend to do more of? Most of us, at least myself, I, I tend in my flesh to do more of the latter 
giving God thanks for what he has done. And, and while that's good, we should do that. We should absolutely thank God for the ways in which he has blessed us, provided for us, taken care of us and our family, watched over us, given us victory over our enemies, all of that. We should be the one leper out of 10. Remember the story from Luke 17 where 10 lepers were healed, but only one came back to thank Jesus. We ought to be that one leper that returns to thank Jesus and recognize that he is the one who has done this in our lives. But when we find ourselves thanking God more for what he has done for us than praising him for who he is, perhaps that's because in our flesh we're more concerned about ourselves than about God. In the core of our flesh, we find ourselves thinking that life is more about us and what we need and what we want than being about God and what he deserves. Does God deserve to be thanked by us for all of the ways in which he has blessed us and come through for us and all of that? Absolutely, yes. But don't forget to praise God for who he is because he certainly deserves that as well. I think that's the true test of selfless worship. Because there will be times in our life that will be more like Psalm 10. Where we will be asking God, why aren't you giving me victory over my enemies? And why are the wicked pro prospering? And the question in those moments will be, will we still praise God for who he is? The psalmist does both of these, and so should we. But then the psalmist gets more specific about what he's thanking God for and praising God for in verses 3 through 6. God is praised for defeating enemies. In verses 3 through 6, David describes what, what has happened to Israel's enemies. Listen to these verses. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You've rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And so, so David is praising God here specifically for defeating his enemies. Look how he describes them. When, the, when, when my enemies turned back, in other words, when they came back around for another shot at me, they stumbled and they perished in your presence, O Lord. The wicked have perished. You have dealt righteously with them. You have judged them with righteousness. The enemy has come to an end. The, their cities are rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And, and, and David is praising God for how he has defeated David's enemies. Now, when we read in the Psalms in particular about battling against our enemies, we need to be reminded that we battle not against flesh and blood. Paul talks about who our enemy is and who we do battle against in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, people, they're not our enemies. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but 
But against what? He tells us. Against rulers. He's not talking about people rulers, human rulers. He's talking about evil spiritual rulers. Against the authorities. And he's not talking about government authorities. He's talking about demonic spiritual authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that's our enemies. David's enemies may have been Absalom, may have been King Saul. His enemies may have been the Amalekites. But our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our two great enemies are Satan, the great deceiver of the world, and sin. Both sin within and sin without, sin in the world around us. And most of the time when we battle, we battle against indwelling sin. We're battling against wickedness in our own heart. Paul describes his own battle against sin in the closing verses of Romans chapter 7. Where he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. He says, wretched man that I am. In other words, what am I going to do? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then of course the, the, the very first verse, first couple of verses from the, the next chapter right after this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so God has won the victory over our enemies through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus's sin, uh, through his uh, death on the cross, he has defeated sin and death forever for those who trust in his atoning sacrifice as their only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve. And so, like David, we praise God that God has achieved victory over our enemies as well. And like David says of the nations in verse 5, you have blotted out their name forever. In like manner, God, through Jesus Christ, has blotted out our sin forever. As this very same David writes in Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins from us. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, verse 12, that he remembers our sin no more. Just as, just as David says of the nations that, that their names are blotted out forever and ever, so the Lord through Christ has blotted out our sin forever and ever. There seems to be, though, a bit of an eschatological tone, um, at least in verses 5 and 6 here, where the, the psalmist looks towards the future when Israel's enemies will not just be defeated, but they will be no more, right? Right? Have all of the nations perished? No. Have all of Israel's enemies 
perished? No, of course not. They, they, they didn't end David's day. They didn't end the day of, of his sons reigning on the throne or the kings that came after them. And, and that's certainly not true today. The, the enemies of Israel are still alive and well. Their names have not been blotted out. The very, the very memory of them has not perished. And so some Bible scholars uh, see the Hebrew verb tenses there in verses 5 and 6, and they call them prophetic perfects. Prophetic perf- perfects. They look like past tense verbs, but they're pointing forward to something that hasn't yet happened. But there is such a certainty that they are going to happen that they are spoken of as if they already have. They're spoken of in the past tense, though it is a prophetic future. And praise God, we can say the very same thing about the victory that God has won for us over our enemy sin. Has Christ defeated sin? Yes, absolutely. But we still fight against indwelling sin in our own hearts. Christ, through his death on the cross, when he breathed his last, he defeated the the penalty and the power of sin. But until he brings us home, we will still have the residue of a sinful flesh that likes sin, that delights in sin. And so we are still in that battle. In like manner, Satan also was defeated at Calvary. Satan is a defeated foe. The mortal wound was dealt on Satan when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. But the great deceiver, we know, still works his evil in the world today. He, like sin, is a defeated foe. But he will not be thrown into the abyss until after Jesus returns. But that is such a certainty that we can speak of it as if it has already happened. And so we can can say along with King David in verses 5 and 6, with respect to our enemies, you have rebuked our enemies, Satan and sin. Lord, you have made them perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. Satan and sin have come to an end in everlasting ruins. Their influence you rooted out, and the very memory of them has perished. Praise God that through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, our enemies are done away with. And we can use those prophetic perfects for them as well. God is praised here for defeating enemies, but also David is praising God for his just rule, for his righteous rule on behalf of the oppressed on those suffering injustice at the hand of the wicked. And we see this in verses 7 through 12. And by the way, in verses 7 through 12, we will see elements both of uh, David praising God for who he is and thanking God for what he has done. We see elements of both of that, both of those here. So what's happening in verses 7 through 12? In these verses, the psalmist is giving to the reader the source of their hope in battling against an enemy. What is the source of their hope? This is what he lays out for them. He tells them in verse verse 7, remember that the Lord sits enthroned forever. 
Remember that he has established his throne for justice. He is sovereign. He's still in control. This doesn't change him or his plans in the least. He still sits enthroned. And remember verse 8, that when he judges, he judges with righteousness, meaning that his justice never misses the mark. It's always perfect and it's always right. Verse 9, the oppressed are encouraged now to remember that the Lord is a stronghold for them in times of trouble. Remember in chapter 10, that was questioned. But here he says the Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. And so in verse 10, those who know his name, in other words, those who know who he is, who know his heart, his character, his nature, those who know who his name is, put their trust in him. Why? Because the Lord is will not forsake those who seek him. And so the psalmist then in verse 11 exhorts the reader, in light of this, in light of this truth, he he tells them to do two things. These are two imperative verbs in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. So those are both imperative verbs. Those are the only commands that David gives to his readers. Sing praises to the Lord and tell among the peoples his deeds. Verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. In other words, Israel's enemy has spilled blood among God's people. And God who avenges blood, he says he is mindful of them. And he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. This this would have been a great encouragement to the Israelites as they read this psalm and as they faced further attacks from other enemies, that God alone was their source of hope in the midst of that battle against those attacks and those enemies. And friend, the the same is true for us. When the enemy attacks us, when Satan tempts, when indwelling sin uh, seeks to lure us into their trap, when the evil world tries to trip us up, what is our source of hope in those moments? It's not politics. It's not government. It's not war and conflict and the military. It's, it's not self-improvement. It's not even education. Some of those things are good and God can use them, but none of those will save us from sin and evil. Our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is the gospel. The grace that saves, we know, is the same grace that sanctifies. It's the same grace that that purifies and and transforms us and and makes us practically holy, not not just positionally holy. It's the same grace that preserves us and causes us to persevere in the faith. Our only hope is to trust in a sovereign God who is still seated on the throne of Zion. Our only hope is is to trust in a God who, who, as David says here, judges with righteousness. A God who is a stronghold for the oppressed, including those who are oppressed by sin. Both sin within and sin without. Our only hope is a God who is a stronghold in times of trouble. And we who know his name who know this God by faith in Jesus Christ, we put our trust in him, as he says, because we know that he does not forsake 
those who seek him. And so, in turn, we obey the commands of verse 11. We sing praises to our God who sits enthroned in Zion, and we tell among the peoples, and we tell, a one, tell among one another in the church all of his wondrous deeds, because he is the source of our hope when our enemies attack. And so in verse 13, now the tone of the psalm shifts having recounted all of the ways that God has come through for him and for Israel in the past, and having recognized that, praising God for that, he now, in verse 13, begins to ask God to do the same in his present circumstances. David voices three things to God in this prayer in verses 13 through 20. First, David entreats God to continue to defeat his enemies. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of the Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And so he's asking God to see his affliction at the hands of his new enemy and he's asking God to defeat this enemy like he did before and why so that he would be able to recount these praises as well so that he would be able to rejoice in God's salvation so he's asking for God to defeat his enemies so that God would be glorified in him and through him secondly David expresses confidence in God's judgment of the wicked in this prayer Look at verses 15 through 18. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He's executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So he says, man, the, the, the nations get caught in the traps that they set for God's people. In other words, it's been turned around on them. They have gotten their due reward. They have received what they deserve. And then he mentions the hope of the poor here. And then that immediately moves him into the third part of his prayer in the last two verses of this psalm, where David prays for the Lord to continue his just rule. He, he praised God for his just rule in the first half of the psalm. Now he's asking God to continue his just rule in these last two verses. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, and let the nations know that they are but men. So David first praises God for who he is and for what he has done on his behalf and on Israel's behalf, all the ways that God has come through for him in the past in the first 12 verses. And then in these closing verses, he entreats the Lord to do the same for him in his present circumstances. His confidence in who God is, demonstrated by what God has done for him in giving him victory over his enemies time and time again, compels David to entrust himself to God in the present battle that he's facing. And the same is true for us. We've talked about who our enemy is. 
Our enemy is Satan. Our enemy is sin, both sin in us and sin in the world. And by the way, when the Psalms, psalmist talks about the world as our enemy, the nations as our enemy, he's not talking about people. He's talking about that world system that is stained and corrupted by sin. That's who our enemy is, and the greater our confidence is in who God is, demonstrated by what God's Word says about who God is, and demonstrated also by what we've learned about God through the victories that He has allowed us to have over those uh, enemies in our own lives, will also compel us to entrust ourselves to His care and His watchfulness both in our present battles against our enemies and the battles that we face against our enemies in the future. And that just means that we have to get to know God more. And we have to have a greater confidence in who God is through what we see on the pages of Scripture and what He's taught us in delivering us from enemies in the past. There are a couple of different types of people who are in this room, only two. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve, which is an eternity apart from God, and those who have not. And I want to close by speaking to both groups. So first, a word to my brothers and sisters who have placed their faith in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, God is to be praised for who he is. And God is to be thanked and praised for what he has done in our life. He has freed us from the prison of sin and death. He's delivered us from the grip of our enemy. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And he deserves our praise and thanks for that. He deserves our praise and thanks for, for his work in rescuing us, saving us, reconciling us, forgiving us, restoring us, and justifying us by grace through faith. And so I want to encourage you, as I'm seeking to encourage myself, to seek to live a life that praises God. We praise God not just with our lips when we sing to Him and when we pray to Him, but when we live our lives for Him. And so I want to encourage you to seek to live your life as a worship service unto God. And do everything, everything in your life to glorify God. Because he deserves it. He deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. And then second, in light of what he has done to rescue us from our enemies, sin and death, will we now entrust ourselves? Will we now entrust ourselves to, 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 to God to rescue us from our ongoing battles with indwelling sin? I, I hope and pray that we will not seek to just pull ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps to try to be better Christians through self-effort or self-improvement. Our hope, our only hope in our ongoing battle against indwelling sin and our only hope in our daily battle against sin that's out there in the world and evil that is around us, our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is a risen Savior, an empty grave. Your only hope is the gospel. So we have to focus on continuing to surrender to Christ who is in us, 
abiding in Christ through the spiritual disciplines and trusting in Christ and he will fight those battles and win those battles for us. But not everyone in here is a brother or sister. Not everyone in here has trusted in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from what we all deserve. And if you're not yet a professed believer in Jesus Christ, then your battle against sin and death is on your own shoulders. And friend, that is a battle that you will never win. That is a battle that is impossible to win. And so I implore you to stop fighting that battle and instead to surrender to Christ. Stop trusting in yourself to make yourself good enough for God and, and, and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross as your only hope to be made good enough in Christ. And so I beg of you, if that describes you, I beg of you to come to Christ this morning. Trust in his finished work as your only hope. The chorus of our closing song that we're just going to we're going to sing in just a moment goes like this. Praise the Lord, our mighty warrior. Praise the Lord, the glorious one. By his hand we stand in victory, by his name we overcome. And that fits well with this battle against our enemies sin and death. In those battles we are not the mighty warrior. He is. In those battles, we're not the glorious one. He is. And if we are going to stand in victory, it's going to be by his hand, not our own. And if we're going to overcome in that battle, it's not going to be by our name. It's going to be by the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and King, we thank you so much that you have seen fit to engage in this battle on our behalf by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price that we deserve to pay and going to the cross and enduring both the physical pain as we celebrated and taking the bread as well as the spiritual separation that we deserve to pay uh, through the shed blood of your son Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for winning that battle for us. We thank you so much that we can trust you each and every day to fight our battles for us against sin and death. And Father, for the strength that we need to engage in that fight through you, we know that we can find that in Christ. And so Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who know you by faith. Father, that they would lean <clears throat> squarely on your shoulders, Lord, uh, to uh, engage in those battles and to fight faithfully against sin in their own life and in their own heart uh, through the strength that is found in Christ, knowing that ultimately the battle is already won. And if we know you by faith, you will see that we make it to the very end. Father, we pray for those that are in this room who have never trusted in Christ, and may they feel the weight of that battle against sin and death on their own shoulders and may they succumb to that weight, Father, and see that their only hope is to trust in Christ and to trust in his finished work and not their own ability to try to be good. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel and the hope that it is as we engage in these battles. And Father, we praise you both for who you are and what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.